The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's open our Bibles then tonight to the book of Hebrews chapter 5, and this evening we will continue our study the priesthood in Israel. It's been a while since uh, the last message on the subject, so I want to read the first six verses of Hebrews 5 as the text for this evening. Hopefully we can get back into the flow of this study. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 1. For every high priest taken among, from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so as also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron." So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Through our long study of the sacrificial system in Israel, we've had the opportunity to explore some of the at least to me, most interesting and, quite frankly, some of the most complicated of Bible doctrines. And I thought it was appropriate for us to bring that study to a conclusion by uh, considering the, the most prominent sacrifice that was made in Israel, and that was the one that was made on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, known simply to the Jews as the day, the symbolism of the sacrifices presented the most outstanding picture of Christ that we find in all of the scripture. The, the sacrifice showed how that Christ placated the wrath of God, how it was made to achieve forgiveness from our sins, to release us from guilt, to justify us in the court of the holy God. And without doubt, the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement were the most important that were made. But also, on the Day of Atonement, the priest played a most significant part. And we're going to talk about, or we have begun to talk about, the priest who made the sacrifices. And the high priest had a critical role representing Christ in another function, that not only was Christ the sacrifice, and by saying that, uh, in no mean, by no means do I minimize the work of Christ in being the sacrifice, but also he did this. He, the priest represented Christ in another way, and that is that the priest offers for sin. So Christ had this dual role, role that, that Aaronic priests could not do. He's both the offering and the offerer. And so as priest, he prepared himself to sacrifice to God. He took our sins on him. And then as the sacrifice, he laid down his life willingly to the death of the cross. And so for us to get the full impact of the Day of Atonement, before we move into that study and talk about what was done on that day, we do need to regard Christ in this role. That is the role of priesthood and how that works in God's economy, along with how an innocent victim is sacrificed on the behalf of others. 
Now our text in Hebrews 5 presents the unique priesthood of Christ as the author explains that the appointment of Jesus as a priest was after another order. Not the ironic order, it's after another order. And the text goes on to explain to us why this other order is necessary since Jesus is an eternal priest and because he predated the laws that were given to Moses, he could not be of that order, of the ironic order. And then neither could Aaron who is subsequent to Christ, to the eternal Christ, be of the order that we're, we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter 5. And this is because Aaron was a sinful man. Jesus was a sinless man. Aaron lived a temporal life. Jesus has eternal life. Aaron was limited in his abilities. And Jesus Christ is infinite in his ability. So these two priesthoods differ. Explanation is given in this chapter and other parts of Hebrews, why a better priesthood was necessary. And so the chapter explains the nature of Christ's priesthood and his descent to that office. So his priesthood comes from another Bible character, one who is mysterious, a very mysterious person in Scripture, and that is Melchizedek. He was a priest uh, at the time of Abraham when God first gave the promise that he would call out his chosen people, and he called them, and he gave the father of the faithful, who is Abraham, a priest to represent him. Now, I didn't mention in the last message, if you remember all the way back to when uh, uh, we talked about this, I didn't mention how that I do believe that the timing of Melchizedek's appearance is significant. He didn't show up in the Garden of Eden he didn't arrive as Noah was about to enter into the ark. He didn't appear at the Tower of Babel. But he appeared in Abraham's time. He, he appeared when God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great multitude. And so before Israel became a nation, a priest was given in preparation of the vast numbers of people that would populate this great spiritual kingdom of God that would come. And it came at the right time when God people needed a priest. Now, there, there isn't any information in the scriptures that others regarded Melchizedek as a priest. Now, it does say that he was a priest. It says he was a king. It tells us the name of his kingdom. That kingdom is Salem. But it tells us nothing else. It doesn't tell us anything about what he did, what people regarded him as a priest or as a king. It doesn't say anything about his family, nothing about his relatives. And I believe that part is highly significant. The Bible shows us that it is significant because Melchizedek represents an eternal priesthood. The eternal doesn't have ancestors. And this is a priesthood then that was established before the world began. And then God intended that exactly the right time Christ would come, the priest would come, Melchizedek would come. And don't mistake me here, I'm not saying that Christ and Melchizedek are the same. They are not the same person. Melchizedek is emblematic of Christ. He is not Christ, as some believe. But he is a priest of God's elect, God's chosen people. And Jesus Christ is also the priest of God's elect, his chosen people. Now, if you'll turn back a few pages in Hebrews to chapter 2, there, there is a statement made about Christ's eternality and his, in, his uh, eternal intentions. In the 10th verse of Hebrews 2, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Now, you look at that and 
hopefully you see a parallel, know of a parallel in your mind, at least in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it speaks of his preexistence as the creator. And then in the next phrase, it says, in bringing many sons to glory. They are many, but they're not all. And this is because his intention is to save a select group, many, but not all. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. In other words, both have the same God and Father. Therefore, they can't be all people because the Word of God clearly says is that not all are the children of God. Then he says, for the which cause, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That tells us these are all of a class. These are all in this one family. And then in verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren... In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee, and again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children which God hath given me. So who, who are these spoken of? These are the children given to him by the Father. Have we heard that before? Do we know scripture that says the same? Well, certainly we do. Christ in his high priestly intercessory prayer said the same. In John 17, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now the Bible is marvelously consistent. Though people aren't very consistent, the Word of God is. And so in chapter 5, it describes Jesus as the high priest. In chapter 2, he intended to bring many sons to glory, and then in John 17, he prays for them as the high priest, interceding for them to the Father. So when you study New Testament and Old Testament together, then we find that the beauty of Christ's work comes alive in doctrine, the doctrines that we believe is firmly established through the Scriptures. Now, going back to this study of Old Testament priests, our first observation in that, in that message previously was the purpose of the call. Hebrews chapter 5, uh, combined with the previous observations that we've made, teaches the duties of the priest. First and foremost, the scripture says, it is the duty of the priest to offer sacrifice. In verse number 1, a priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. So whenever we think of a priest, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. When we think of priesthood, we think of sacrifices. A priest is ordained to make sacrifices, whether we're talking about a heathen priest or an Israelite priest. A priest is ordained to make sacrifices. I mentioned the Tower of Babel just a moment ago. Babel was the first incident of idol worship, at least the first one that we know of in, uh, know of, uh, in Scripture. The, that great tower of Babel was a monument to heathen gods, and no doubt it was a place of sacrifice because that's what... Satan does. He mimics God. And so you can be sure if God has a sacrifice, then Satan also has his sacrifice. And this is what the people learned at the Tower of Babel. How do we mimic the one true God? That's the way that Satan works. God gave instructions for the tabernacle, and the people brought their articles to make the, the, the articles for worship. They brought all the materials for that. But they lacked one thing. They brought all of this stuff to the tabernacle. This is the place where they're going to worship, but they lack one thing. They don't have a priest. They don't have a priest to make sacrifices. 
Everybody knows this about a priest. And the Roman Catholics hold on to this aspect of priesthood as their priests make sacrifice every time that they perform a Mass. There is a sacrifice. It's one of the reasons that you'll never hear a Baptist preacher called a priest. We don't have any formal functions of priesthood like they did in the Old Testament times. We don't have any like the Roman Catholic priest does. But I've been called priest a few times. I've been called father a few times. And I've learned the best thing to do is to take advantage of that opportunity. And so in the spirit of Luther, I make a little money off of it. I sell some indulgences every now and then. So if you, if you need that, you can come and see me. Secondly, the scripture says it's the duty of the priest to be compassionate. Compassion is born out of close identification that the priest has with the people. He comes from the people. He knows the trials of their lives. He, he knows human heartache, and so he can sympathize with the problems of the people. And so also we know this about Christ, that he lived among men. He tabernacled with man. He felt what we feel. He sympathizes with what we experience, and so he knows every human emotion. Thirdly, we learned in the scripture that the priest is a mediator, that he stands between. He is the one who stands in the gap between man and God. And also, that is the work of Christ. He bridges the gap of that great divide between man and God, and there is no one who passes over that gap except he comes through Jesus Christ. You remember the rich man in hell, Abraham said to him, you can't come to us and we can't go to you because there is a gap, essentially a gap that is impossible to cross over. And the reason it's there is because the rich man missed the way. He missed the, the bridge that would bring him to God. And this is what happens in the life. In life, our, in life, the bridge is here, but when we die, the bridge is gone. It's torn down and then it's too late. And so those that are in hell never pass over because they don't have Christ. They can't get to Christ to be the bridge to God. Fourthly, the priest intercedes. Mediation and intercession, those are two things that are tied very closely together. The priest intercedes by praying for the people. And Christ also intercedes for us. The scripture says he ever lives to make intercession. So in all ways, as we read what the priest is supposed to do, Christ meets all of the qualifications. Now secondly, in our outline, is the priority of the call. Now, I mentioned in another message that when God gave Moses instructions for the priesthood, he told him to go and get Aaron and his sons and make them priest. Our, our other text in Exodus 28 says, take them. It doesn't say, ask them. It says, take them. There are no choices but God's choices. God superintends all choices. So there aren't any truly independent people. God controls choices. So he says, take them and consecrate them to the priesthood. God makes that choice. And from there, once God makes the choice, the priority for what that person is to do is set. God calls, he determines in salvation and in service... As Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. And then he gave them the purpose of their choosing, the call, and that is go and bring forth fruit. 
And so both the calling and the service, that is ordained by God. And then, as we say, the call of God on a man's life becomes his priority. And I want to show you a few things about that. And along the way, uh, we need to bring in the example of Christ and how he prioritized the work that God gave him to do. If you turn to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8, there, there was a disciple who came to Jesus after he saw the miracles that Jesus did, and he thought, here now is a strategic time to get in on this action, because the movement towards Jesus was getting stronger and stronger. Jesus was the talk of everyone everywhere that he went. And so for a while, it was popular for people just to tag along behind Jesus wherever he went because if you know Jesus, you're somebody. If you're acquainted with him, you're somebody. He's the big famous guy in Israel at the time. Now the text calls the man a disciple. But I think that we learned very quickly that he's not a true disciple, but he is a pretender. He thought there's something to be gained by following Jesus and not eternal things. He's looking for something else and that spurs the the response that Jesus gives to him because Jesus already knows his heart. In the 19th verse of Matthew 8, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples, of course, indicating that first man is also a disciple. Another of his disciples said in him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So first there is a scribe, another disciple comes. First there is a scribe, he says he'll follow Jesus and Jesus set him up for hardship, saying, well, if you're going to follow me, you've got to leave everything else behind. You won't have a place to lay your head at night. But then this next man, he, he, he's an illustration of the point. Jesus appeared callous towards him. The man says, it says he'd lost his father, and yet Jesus refused his request. So why shouldn't he be allowed to go and bury his dead father before he followed Jesus? The answer to that question is priorities. What is the priority? Now, we're stumped by this, perhaps because not very many know the ancient customs. What did all this conversation mean? What's taking place? Well, what's taking place is that the man's father had not actually died. This is, this is their way of speaking. What he meant was, my father is old, and he's going to die and I need to be around to take care of my father until he dies because that ensures I will receive my inheritance. So he intended, I'll follow you, Jesus, after this is done, after I'm set up, after I have everything that I need, when I've got plenty of money in the bank so it's not a hardship on me, then I'll follow you wherever you go. Now the point of all of that is that God's work is the priority, and we've got to trust God to supply us and step out when He says to go. Now, I, I have a few statements here, and I don't really intend them to be critical of our missionaries, but we do have to ask the question, how many missionaries go rather than waiting two or three years until they gather all the support that they need so they can go? Now, I don't criticize that because... 
I think we're all that way to some degree. Few people are going to step out in faith. But it really kind of begs the question, what if they had been right there with Jesus, would they cut it as missionaries with Jesus? Or would he just send them home? If you're not ready to go right now and trust me, then I don't really need you. If you're going to wait until your pockets are full, then that's not a right priority. Christ's call is the priority. You don't put him off till another time. Paul is the right model for this. He said that he wasn't going to let anything deter him from preaching. He was called on, to the, on the road to Damascus, and what did he do? Right then, he left his old way of life. Right then, he left everything behind, and he started to preach Christ. And he said, woe is me if I preach not Christ. And so everything else in his life is useless to him. He counted all things lost. He, he suffered the loss of everything that he had, his pride, his position, his religion, all of his money. And the only thing that Paul wanted was enough to get me from one preaching point to the next. And so if he had to sell a tent along the way, he would do it. Because God's work, Christ's work, was his priority. Now, I've heard many Christians say otherwise. They say there are other priorities that are first, and they actually think that they're being noble and being Christian by saying there are other priorities that are first. So what are these priorities? Well, first, you've got to take care of yourself. It's natural. Well, what are you going to do if you don't take care of yourself? You can't live if you don't take care of yourself. The second thing that they want to do, and maybe they'll reverse these even because they're even more noble than you think, and that is they'll say, family is first. We've got to take care of our family first. And then somewhere down in the line, down the line, somewhere in the list, we put the church. I find that to be impossible. The church is the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ on earth. So how do you put family above the church? It's not biblical. That's not right. It's not righteous. Our priority is Christ. And the practical outworking of that priority is the work of the Lord's church. And those who have trouble making that distinction between which should be the priority, is it family or the church, are going to have a real difficult time making the glory of God their priority. But still, you might ask, well, how can that be? I mean, this, this doesn't sound right. It, it doesn't sound like what we ought to do. How can a man put his family below the church? And the answer to that question is, he doesn't actually have to. If his family is right, and he does what he's supposed to do, family and church don't conflict. Family and church will go together perfectly. And if they don't, and the family actually does take away from Christ, then you're looking at a Matthew 8 problem. You've got a different priority than what Christ has set for you. So here's the question for you. See if Jesus will let you bury your dead. You understand what I'm saying? See if Jesus will let you bury your dead. And the answer to that question is no. You can't put your family above, above Jesus Christ. And so, in other words, if your priority is to tend to them then your priority can't be him. That's not his work. Now, there's a lot more to be said about that, but something is wrong with the Christian that finds it hard to choose Christ when his family conflicts with God. But we'll find out, so don't anybody get too upset. We're going to find out in just a few minutes. These things work out according to God's plan. Your family does not have to be below God. Your family can be 
right there where it's supposed to be as you honor God because he makes sure that it's right there where it should be. Now, another way that we see God's work prioritized is in Acts chapter 6. I want you to turn there if you would. Um, I want to be fair to missionaries on deputation, so we need to look at this as well. And by inference, what we have to say here enlightens us on that subject. God's work for the minister is that man's priority. God arranged his church so that would happen. So as a pastor of the church, you say, well, is your wife your priority? Well, yes, absolutely, my wife is a priority. But she's within the priority of the parameters of what we do in this church as we work together to serve the Lord. We are together on that issue. Now, by inference, I said, the chapter would enlighten us on this subject, how it all works together. God arranged his church to make these things work together. So in Acts chapter 6, here we see the first deacons are chosen. And you may remember I gave you their, their purpose a few months ago when we had Matt's ordination service. And the purpose is to help the pastor maintain his priorities. Verse number 1, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there rose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, there we have the pastor's priority. The apostles are the uh, pastors of that first church, and the pastor's priority is the ministry of the word. And so to keep his priorities straight, he must have others who take the burdens of ministry away from him, things that would prevent him from spending his time, as the apostles said here, in prayer, study, and preparation for the preaching. The deacon's priority is to make that happen. And so when the church is working together properly, when pastor and deacons are working, working together properly, the Lord is glorified, and when either fail, then God's people are the ones that are shortchanged. In this case, they would be starved of the meat of God's word. Well, then next we would have to ask, did Jesus prioritize the Father's work in this way? Well, there's no doubt that he did. John 4, 24, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. I want you to catch the context of the statement. The disciples asked Jesus if he was hungry. Do you need some food? Well, they'd gone into Sychar to buy some food, while Jesus stayed behind and spoke to the woman at the well. They were interested in food. He was interested in his commission. So they said, when they came back, Master, eat. And he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. So what he did was turn a phrase on them. My meat, that is, my food, is my father's work. My work is more necessary than my food. And there you could see that the job by which you get food is not higher priority than Jesus Christ. Then we go back to John 17 where Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer and he said, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And this is what he said in John 4, here is my priority, my priority is to finish what the Father's given me 
to do. And then in John 17, the work is finished. He has steadfast determination to complete that work. And he prayed in this prayer in John 17. And in less than 24 hours, the Father's work was done. His entire life was for that priority. The design from day number one when he entered into public ministry was to get to the cross. And so we see that in the very beginning, at the inauguration of his ministry, he was baptized. That's the visualization of the work of the cross. And so he's showing people from the very beginning, this is where I'm headed, this is what I'm going to do. And so three years of public ministry was to earn that right to go to the cross to be the priest who offered a sacrifice for our sins. So he lived the sweet savor of a life of righteousness to become the non-sweet savor of sacrifice, of sacrifice of the death to sin. So he was determined to do this. Isaiah prophesied it, Isaiah 50 verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. That's just a remarkable prophecy. To set his face like a flint, that means determination. This is a singular purpose, a constant eye on the goal, he must get to the cross and he will not be deterred. Well, the disciples tried to dissuade him. In John 11, Jesus would go to Bethany for the death of Lazarus. And that death was a planned event that's already planned for Jesus to do this. It's to get him near to Jerusalem to heighten the tension between him and the religious leaders who would not be able to deny that a miracle of resurrection had happened. So, since they can't deny the miracle, the only choice that they have is to get rid of Jesus. So the death of Lazarus is a planned event to show the power of God to get Jesus next near to Jerusalem where he would cause this strife and stir up things and they would crucify him because they couldn't do anything else with him. But before he went, the disciples said, Don't you remember what happened the last time that you went to Jerusalem? Don't you remember? Why are you going to go there again? They tried to stone you before. And then in Luke 9, 51, the prophecy of Isaiah comes alive as Luke writes, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Matthew 20, 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priests and under the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. Folks, that's prioritizing. You know exactly what would happen? His goal is to get there. Nothing is going to stop him from getting there. And he says the same to us. Nothing is to stop your service to God. And so when we decide that we're going to follow what God has told us to do, that's when God providentially guides our walk so that our family comes along beside of us and our family does what they're supposed to do and all the issues and all the hindrances that keep us from serving God are worked out. And so I think that you would find this to be true, that if you haven't prioritized Christ in your life, then you will run into family conflicts. You will run into all the hindrances that you can't seem to get over that would stop you from serving Christ. But when you make it your determination, I will do this no matter what, God parts the waters. He lets you go through. He enables you to do His work. And you won't do it unless you've decided 
to prioritize what he says to do. So God minimizes our conflicts. And you may think that's not true. Well, I'll tell you, then you haven't tried it like the Bible says to do it yet then. Because it is true. It happened in these Bible characters' lives. And certainly the example of Jesus is there. When he prioritized the Father's work, things fall into place to get Jesus exactly where he needs to be at the right time. So God's priorities were demonstrated by Jesus. The Father selected him, and he was anointed to be the priest. Exodus 30, verse 30, And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. Aaron was anointed, and Christ was anointed. Hebrews 1, verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, speaking of Jesus, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Christ was anointed. And that's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. He is officially, his title is officially the anointed one. He's ordained, chosen to the highest work. And he never reneged on that priority. Now one more comment on this part. And I I want to emphasize again the importance for you that you need to learn from these sermons, just like the G crew back there, uh, learning from the sermons. You need to learn from the sermons. And our study of the seven churches has shown us the danger of lost priorities. The Ephesian church was the first one that Christ wrote to, and their big glaring error is a lost priority. Nevertheless, Revelation 2.4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The first love was the priority. That's Christ. That's all I'm trying to tell you. It's Christ. It's always the first priority. What is Ephesus? It is a body of Christ. And you can't make him first unless his body is first. So the church is not down in the middle of your list unless you've lost your first love. A few years ago, one of the parents of our good young men tried to dissuade him from devoting too much time to the church. And so they said, the church is brainwashing you. Oh, you might not have noticed, but our brains need to be washed, I think. And um, if they're filled with worldly priorities, that's the stuff that does need to get flushed out. We aren't exercising mind control in Berean Baptist Church. We aren't. The Holy Spirit is. He's exercising mind control. I mean, he wants a person to put on Christ, and if that person does, then he purifies himself as Christ is pure. He gets rid of the things in his life that he shouldn't have there. And so, yes, he does get a thorough brainwashing to make sure the only thing there is Christ. Now, I want to speak thirdly, and we'll just get a start here, the privilege of the call. Just to start, we're not going to finish The third part of our message uh, is going to top off with this important view of Christ's priesthood, that priesthood was special service. All of God's people are called to special service. and In fact, uh, in this age of the church, we are all referred to as a kingdom of priests. That would certainly tell us that we all have a priority. All are servants of Christ. And if you haven't heard, servants serve That's what a servant is. It's someone who serves. But organization requires leadership, and there are some who are chosen out of the other servants to be the chief stewards of God's work. 
James called them masters in James 3.1. They're called for Christ and not for self. And this is what we do. We take leadership positions not to assert self, but to keep all of the servants of Christ on track to glorify Christ. I don't think that Aaron envisioned himself as a priest. He didn't grow up, and, and then as a young man, he said, you know, I think you know, some kids want to be firemen when they grow up, some want to be policemen, and so on. Aaron didn't say, you know, I think I'll be a priest. I think that I'll enter into the ministry, and I'll become a priest of God. No, he wouldn't do that, because there wasn't a formal priesthood. There wasn't any such thing. The people weren't even well acquainted with their God. After all those years of captivity, they didn't know very much about God. And we learned that when God said to Moses, nobody knows me by my name Jehovah. They didn't know who God was in that respect. But I believe that God set Aaron up for priesthood when Moses first told God, I can't go to Pharaoh. I can't speak very well. And Moses made all of these excuses, and God promptly answered every excuse. And finally, to end all of his objections, God said, well, then I'm going to send Aaron with you. He can speak well. He must have been articulate. God complimented Aaron's ability to speak. So Aaron started out for the priesthood acting as a mediator. That was a mediator between Moses and Pharaoh. And that's sort of an ironic twist of the story that Aaron was training for priesthood, a priesthood that didn't exist, and certainly not one to which he could aspire. Now Hebrews 5.4 says, There's no man who takes this honor of priesthood on himself, but he must be called of God. Listen what it says, as was Aaron. If God singles you out for service, is that not a unique privilege? Other pastors and I, have said the calling that we have is higher than any man can have. The office is higher than any man can hold. It's an office of the church of the living God of Jesus Christ that he loved and gave himself for. Christ didn't die to build the United States of America. He died to build his church. And so if there's any way that we can serve in the Lord's church, that's a privilege. To be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord is a privilege above what most people will ever have. Lou outside there is privileged. He's a privileged man to be a doorkeeper, and there's nobody takes his job more seriously than does Lou. It's not a reason for us to brag, but nonetheless true that God does put some men in the top of leadership. The pastor is in that position. Do you understand that there are very few people that have the opportunity in their lives across all the millions and billions of people in the world, there's only a small fraction who become pastors of true New Testament churches. So I have to look at that as supremely divine favor. It's not what I've done. It's what God has done for me. And so if I'm going to brag, brag on the graciousness of God to me to allow me to do this. Hebrews 5.4 says, No man takes this honor to himself. And that word honor has a special meaning. Now, there, there are a couple of important aspects to notice about that. I'll, I'll, I'll give those to you, and hopefully you'll see why they're important. I'm just going to actually get one. But I'm going to classify it under this heading, the exclusivity of the priesthood, the exclusivity of it. The man's honor in the office is a byproduct of the worth of, 
of the one who calls. Now, it's not me that is to be honored. Whatever honor I receive is a byproduct of who God is. The esteem that's afforded the person in the pulpit is because of the one who has chosen him. He magnifies the God who chose him. And so by that close association with the one who chose him, then he is to be afforded respect. Some weeks ago we discussed Eli, the Old Testament priest at the time of Samuel. And Eli was a very poor priest. I mean, he was very poor in character. He didn't reprove his sons. They were also priests, of course. And, and uh, he didn't reprove them for their wicked acts of allowing and committing fornication at the God sanctuary. And because of Eli's oversight, God put a curse on his descendants so that Eli's priesthood never prospered. There was no priest of Eli's stock that had any notoriety in Israel. And until the priesthood was restored to the Aaronic order under Eliphaz, um, then, not Eliphaz, what's, what's his name? Uh, Eleazar, I'm sorry. Until it's, re until it's restored under Eleazar, there was no respect for the priesthood in Israel. Saul, you remember, had no respect that he went to Nob and killed all the priests of God. And you look at that and say, why would he do that? Who would dare kill the priests of God? And do you know the high priest was descended from Eli? It's part of the curse. That's why it happens. Saul has no respect for the priest. Now, I'm not going to rehearse the issue of descent, how that Eli became a priest when he wasn't descended from Eleazar. But just suffice it to say that if the priest is not close to God and not obedient to God, then he doesn't deserve respect. The office requires respect because of the man's association with God, not because of who the man is. So priests were descended from Aaron, but not every descendant of Aaron became a priest. Proper genealogy, that's only the bottom floor requirement for priesthood. That's the first hurdle you have to clear, but that by no means is the most difficult one. Now if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 21, we'll see how God was specific in his choice. And I'm just going to read the scripture tonight, and I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to let you hold on to it and continue to think about it for this next week, and then we're going to discuss it more fully and compare it to the New Testament requirements for the pastorate. In Leviticus 21 and verse number 18, strange sayings here. For whatsoever man he be, now it's talking about priesthood, who you can choose, for whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed, or crook-backed, or a dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. Now you can be sure that these are not politically correct requirements. These are distinctions that would never fly in our society. I'm not saying they should, but we ought to be very careful to note God has good reasons for excluding certain physical characteristics. And the reasons have much to do with typology, and we have already seen how strict that God is about typology. So we're going to take that list up in the next message, and I want to explain to you God's exclusions. In the Old Testament, 
Much of it was physical. Exclusions were physical. In the New Testament, the physical is emblematic of the spiritual. One represents the other. And we're going to see how next time. Now, I do hope that none of you find what we've talked about this evening dull and boring. Uh, it's part of Scripture, quite frankly, that most people never see. When do you hear messages on such things? And the, the reason that you might get bored, you might fall asleep, as some do, is because I don't speak like Aaron. I'm more like Moses. That's my problem. So you may fall asleep because of the delivery. But thankfully, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word and we lift up Christ, we're going to listen a whole lot better than Eli. We're not going to be bored with God's Word. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time spent in your Word tonight. Wonderful truths that we find. Lord, it's just a joy to stand before your people and to bring out these things of Scripture and to help us to learn about Jesus, who He is and what He's done for us. Bless Your people, Lord. Help us to think on Your Word this week, to prioritize You and Your Word. Make that number one always in our lives. And then, Lord, we know we will be blessed in everything that we do. We give You the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.